Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Saman Kesh, a filmmaker who's made music videos for Ed Sheeran, Placebo, Calvin Harris, and Hot Chip, among others. He's just co-written and co-directed his first feature project, Doors, a science fiction anthology starring Josh Peck, Lena Esco, and Kip Malone, among others, as people whose lives are irrevocably changed by the sudden appearance of alien portals all over the planet. It's available on VOD platforms everywhere, and you might want to check it out. Saman picked Chungking Express, Wang Garwai's 1994 breakout feature, which is an anthology of sorts as well, twinning the stories of two heartsick Hong Kong cops and the women who weave in and out of their lives. The cops are played by Takeshi Kaneshiro and Tony Long Chuai. The women are played by Brigitte Lin and Fei Wong. I can talk about the story, but it's not really important. What matters is the mood and the way Wong takes the pieces of a recognizable genre and spins them into a reverie unlike anything we'd ever seen before, which is the same trick Jean-Luc Godard pulled with Breathless, come to think of it, except that Godard couldn't put the cranberries on his soundtrack. This is someone else's movie. I'm just going to like rip this bandaid off. So my girlfriend passed away at the end of January, uh, December. Oh my God. Three months ago. Yeah. I'm three so months sorry. Mark on Monday. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot of the, a lot of lo- loneliness and the Wong Kar Wai tone is very pertinent. She was a big fan. One of her favorite movies was In the Mood for Love. Um, and so, like, I think, you know, when I always think of In the Mood for Love, uh, it, it, yes, it's, it, I think of her a lot, but a lot of, a lot of when I think about that is just, there's just so many people where that's, that's the master, that's the masterpiece of his films for a lot of people. And, and it, it actually is like, if I were to break it down technically, it is the masterpiece of his films. Um, I just think because Wong Kar Wai is not a masterpiece guy, he's very much like he's a, he vomits and it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. And, and, and I, I, so I think Chunky Express is a great, to me, that's the great insecure young mind vomit that like, I feel um, there was a naive sense of confidence in it. Um, but there was this still this itch of like, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm, what if I need to do this? What if I need to do that? Like, do, is this my midpoint, you know? Um, and then fallen angels kind of does some of that too, but it's like, it works. Cause it's absurd. It's ridiculous. You know, um, yeah. just apply. It's like, a, it's like a, it's like a child logic plot, you know? Um, but somehow, I don't know that dude just somehow just bulldozes his way into making things work. And I, I feel like I'm very much like that. I feel like a lot of what I do and what I make and like I'm making a Kung Fu rom-com right now that I'm writing. And there's just a lot of stuff where people will tell you you're wrong. And half of my ADD counter will wants to say, fuck you. But like part of it is like, what's the note behind the note? What am I wrong about? You know what I mean? And, and try to analyze that way. And I always think of Wong Kar Wai when I'm like, Nah, man, I'm just interesting. And what I put in my, in front of my audience will be interesting as, as and for me, cause I'm, I do want to go more pop, you know? Um, I have a short film that I did called controller that has been trying to be adapted for a while. It was at Fox for a couple of years, but it's called controller. And I always present it as uh, one car Cameron, you know, it's like James Cameron meets one car. Why? So it's like, just really, it's got this ethereal quality, but there's this like logic plot that like, just any brain can kind of focus on, but it's just, it like escapes into this existential stuff. And, and um, you know, I think Chunking Express really does that. And um, when I watched it recently, I, I thought, thought it was so interesting that, you know, you've got the two relationships and you expect it, it totally starts as that 1994 indie era where it's all going to sort of start to like blend and the two characters are going to run into each other. And all right. you have is a handoff. That's all you have. And, it's so strange to me that like, I don't know, for whatever reason, I don't want it to work that way. Like, I don't like that. I kind of am like the second half is so much better than the first half, but I tried an experiment where I watched just the second half. Oh, and yeah. It felt wrong. It felt wrong. And I don't know if it's comfort, you know, and, um, you know, I didn't get to watch it with Jean, you know, and it makes me really sad because I would have asked her because she's, she was a, she was, um, Jean was a fashion designer. She did, uh, worked for like Rachel Comey and stuff like that. 
And she was so much more art house brain than me. Like her favorite movies, like, you know, what is it? Holy Mountain? Is that the movie? Yeah. Like, the Hodorowsky film, fucking, yeah. Yeah, that's her fucking shit. You know, that and like, you know, Paris, Texas. She was such a, just like that kind of brain. And I was like, you know, want to make like art, like art house James Cameron movies, you know? And like, but there i think we appreciated that about each other so much and and i that was a movie i could i was dying to like just talk to her about and get in the fights about and you know she has so much because she's chinese american she had a lot of insight on christopher doyle and how christopher doyle had like insane yellow fever and just like loved asian girls and would always be sleeping with asian girls and so she has this like aggro aggression towards that situation and i love that because i'm just like that's part of the movie like that's part that's also why Wong Kar Wai's movies had this like western flavor that just a lot of the other movies just couldn't do they just couldn't you know um even though I would still say it's not western at all I show my American friends uh, uh you know Chunky Express and they just go like what's this weird slow-mo thing and I'm like oh it's skip frame it's like whoa like it's it's weird. Like it's just, it's making me kind of sick, you know? And I'm like, well, that's the point. It's disorienting, you know? And this guy's whole existence is disorienting. And I just remember watching it for the first time. I'll tell you where, where did I see it for the first time? I walked in, I was in film school. We had um, these annex buildings. They were like, you know, annex buildings, right? Like we, we don't have enough money to build the proper ele- extra element of the school populations increasing. Let's not talk about it here are these classes. So sure. what happened in this arts, I went to art center college of design in Pasadena and it was after school. I was meeting up with my co-writer on this music video that we were writing. And I walked in and he was in the middle of just watching a movie because I was like, like ADD fashion was about 15 minutes late. He's the kind of brain where he's like, I can get through 15 minutes of a movie while Saman is fucking slow. So he, I think he started the movie and I opened the door and he didn't hear me. And I just, I don't know what happened, but I froze and I watched the screen and it was just the beginning. And going through the fucking like, you know, Pakistani district and shit. And it's like, you know, crazy cool, like fluorescent temperature. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know? And like, usually I know I'm in love when I'm incredibly jealous and frustrated and angry at whatever I'm watching. Um, And pretty much like all Kubrick movies, whatever, you know, like then I know I'm in love because it's like, I want that for me, but like, I'm so excited. This exists. How many people know about like immediately my brain was like that, you know, like just overload of just excitement and I was like, what are you watching? He's like, Chunking Express. I'm like, oh, whoa. I was like, and he was like, you know, and he told me who it was from. And I, I literally had seen, except Fallen Angels. And I think Grandmaster hadn't come out yet. Grandmaster was 2013. Yeah. It's Fallen Angels and Noon the Mood for Love. And then I think that was it. That was it. Those are the two only I saw at the time. And and um, I I just, I was hooked. And I said, we're, we can worry about writing tomorrow. Let's just watch this movie, you know? And it was just on a shitty TV. And for whatever reason, I felt like I was in 94 because they still, at, at Art Center, I went to art school between 2007, 2011. There was no reason to have a CRT in 2007. I'm sorry, you know? Like, I'm, yes, that's like only seven years after CRTs were like not being sold anymore, but no. But somehow I loved it. It was a rental from a library. It was like a cop, like a DVD copy that looked like it was a, a, a laser disc rip, you know, and uh, you, I can always tell because the way a laser disc deteriorates is so magical. It doesn't look like tape. It's like kind of just weird, you know, those analog um, pulses. I remember yeah, very pulsing and, and yeah. And the way it doesn't pixelate and that's not how it works. It's like um, and you get um, you get colored uh, color deterioration, too. So like the reds get weird. But again, it's on a CRT. So you can't actually see the 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 fidelity shittiness and so it just felt good and we ordered like we ordered dim sum and i just wanted to feel like cantonese you know and it was such an atmospheric experience i've never felt that again and and it's not possible for me to feel that again usually when i watch a movie i've seen before but what i think that movie did in that experience was uh remind me of all the shit you're learning in school all of the act structure let's just take a sidetrack and go, this is what happens when you don't do that stuff, you know? And, and I know that I'm like, I can't, I'm not capable of this. My insecurity level will never allow me to just make something. 
Like I can't, I have to, uh, also cause I have ADD, maybe I need structure and like routine. So like, I need just some bullshit rules to just have a sandbox and then I'd fuck around in that, you know, like a, a yeah, I always say like a movie's like a the tortilla of a burrito, right? Like your genre is just a tortilla. It just holds the ingredients. Otherwise, it'll fall apart. But your movie's the ingredients. You can make a drama and just disguise it as a thriller. You really can. Like that's why when people say drama now and people don't want to buy those movies or invest in those movies, I'm always like, then just don't say drama. Just like find the genre that's least annoying to you and then put your drama in that movie. That's it. You know, and when you watch this movie, it's like, no, what genre do you call Chunking Express? It's ridiculous. Like it's a noir romance. What would you call it? I'm, I'm asking you, what would yeah. you call Chunking Express? Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the, the way that I first experienced. Well, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain the way I first saw it. I saw it. Uh, so it wasn't released in Canada theatrically. The, the deal that Miramax gave Tarantino with his own label, uh, Rolling Thunder Pictures, all of that. Yeah didn't always extend up here because it was distributed like Miramax was distributed in Canada by a company called Alliance and they didn't always go for everything. Some stuff would just yes. get put to video. So my, Oh, that's interesting. So they like handpicked what they would release in the theater. Oh, kind of. Yeah. Even then in the mid nineties, which was like pre like a precursor to the way things would suddenly change in 2005 or so. And, and you were in Toronto then still. I was right? in Toronto. Yeah. Um, and I watched it on a laser disc because I got it from the US. They it was sent to me for a review and I was going to feature it in my video column. And within 10 minutes it was like, "Oh, I got it. I know why Tarantino loves this." And that's how I would explain it. Oh, like, interesting. That's cr- so you had like a recommend from this like this guy that was exploding. It, it was this pre- post pulp fiction? Did yeah, pulp it would have been it would have been a year later, I think. I don't think it came out on laser until like 96 maybe. Oh, but, wow. but it arrived in the mail and I set aside a day to watch it. And there there was construction down the street that was so loud that eventually I realized, oh, I've got the subtitles, I'll be fine. But then I watched it again almost immediately just because I could uh, disappear back into it. And it doesn't have a genre, really? Like it's a neo-noir romance. It's like, if I describe it at all, I just, it's like a swoon. You just, you either accept that it's going to do what it does, or you don't and you leave the theater angry, which did happen to people, I understand. But yeah, now in, in retrospect, it is like what we were talking about before we started recording. It's like, it's the defining moment where Wong Gar Wai figures out how to do the thing he does. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and I think, yeah, that's, it is genreless. Yeah, like I think neo-noir romance, yeah, that's it. That's, I mean, that's that's what you could, assume, that's what like IMDb could go, uh, genre, what do I put? That. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, I watched it recently and I've seen the movie about 10 times. Uh, I say about because I don't really count how many movies people like to, some people do that, but I don't do that. Um, but I think it's about 10 times. And I think every single time I'm in a different mood, uh, I'm a different, um, place in my life with love, how I feel about love. Sometimes I'm romantic. Sometimes I'm like, fuck romance. It's fucking codependence bullshit, you know? Um, and you know, now my girlfriend passed and, and it's a really crazy, you know, I don't know if you do psychedelics or you did psychedelics, but it's just like, imagine like those weird waves of a bad trip that just is really stretched out and doesn't end, you know? And imagine feeling like you wake up to a nightmare rather than waking up from a nightmare. That's basically what it is. And it's just this like lower level psychosis. And I mean that because like you can technically function. I'm here talking to you. Um, And so when I watched it, I, you know, I remember just being like, Oh God, I can get incredibly sad right now that Gene's not here And then I just said, how about I just let the movie take over me and I don't exist as a human? Like, I know I'm not a person with my own thoughts and feelings. I'm in the movie. And this viewing allowed me to really not go, why is this in my top 20 movies of all time? What do I like about Faye Wong? Why is it so fucking sexy and cool to me to have this like pop star who's never acted be this just like sick, cool you know, and anti-pixie dream girl kind of thing. Um, and why, why all that was off. And I just watched it and I, I was watching with a friend, um, uh, who's actually from Toronto as well, actually, she was visiting me and 
we watched it and I, and I, I, I was like, Ooh, this is a movie she's never seen like at all. And so like, it was, I was just like using her. I don't know if you do that when you watch a movie, when you show someone a movie, you're allowed to leave your brain and just be that person. It's like the closest you can get to just being fresh view. Right. Yeah. And, and I just remember being like, yeah, the first part isn't as good as the second part. Like it doesn't, but for whatever reason, um, it hurts so much more. And, and maybe it was my own situation, but like watching, I forget the character, the, all the character names, but just like how he was so beautiful in his romance of these fucking pineapples and the expiration date and, and the idea of there's, is there an expiration date of love? Like why does someone just turn off a relationship and how can you just turn that off? And then, you know, when he goes into the, 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 the circle K and he says, Hey, Hey, I'm looking for May 1st. He's like, dude, that's, that's expired. And he goes like, you, you can't just expire this. It's like love. You can't expire this, you know? And, and I, and, and I was like, Oh, like, he's kind of like a kid. But then that one thought I had just, you know, trailed into everyone else. I said, this is a movie. And, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm like kind of lower end on the spectrum, like a little autistic. And I don't, I don't know that might be from my ADD. It might be, it might not have anything to do with my ADD. Um, and that's something I don't think anyone can really figure out, but I'm very good at articulating when there's an autistic or spectrum-y trait in like a character, but I didn't know I had it until later. And rewatching this, knowing I had autism, like that I was on the spectrum, I was like this whole movie, every character is on the spectrum, (laughs) like every single character and they're stunted. They're emote. All of them are emotionally stunted. Every single one. They're like children, even the like, you know, noir like I'm wearing a wig because this white dude in this bar likes this look and all the girls trying to impress him do this, you know, and her heart's broken. I'm like, she's a kid too. She's stunted, you know, and there's this stunted sadness to all the love. The love wasn't pure to me this round. It was actually really delusional and tragic. And, and when it ended, I thought it was, there wasn't like, you know, even the whole idea that the Fei Wong character becomes the, um, the, the flight stewardess look, the flight attendant look for him. Yeah. But I, how I know she loves him so much is because she studied that relationship so much that she thought she knew this guy only loves what he can't get, what he doesn't have access to. And so without her knowing this guy's fucked, she assimilates into that situation to be that you can't attain me, even though she totally loves him. So there's this tragedy of he doesn't even know that psychology. She's able to like dissect it. And it's just like, what, how did I not see any of those things? You know, like I'm just hanging out with the characters before, but now I was like, psychologist mode and you know it 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 was the lesser of the romantic viewings I had of the movie but what I thought was beautiful was like how much conversation could come after the film you know yeah and it is a very much a conversation movie and he and the movie does not you can tell Wong Kar Wai was single you could tell he probably felt like he would never find love like you could tell he was just like love like that line in her, which I think is beautiful, which probably was stolen from something. It has to be. But when he says, when she says, uh, Amy Adams says, uh, um, love's an acceptable form of insanity, you know? Um, that is what he's making. That is what he's making. And, and, but he romances it in a way where, and, 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 and it's buried in all these other things, but like, you just can't dislike any of the four characters, even if they do really bad things or shallow things or things that you find, maybe you have, that you dislike. And I think this was like the first time that I viewed it in a way where I was like, okay, like what I'm getting out of the story is pretty kind of bums me out, but I, isn't it beautiful that we have a medium that you can output that kind of emotion and those kinds of feelings and, and do it in a way that's not sitting across from a fucking studio exec telling them what's the takeaway, what's wh- how, what makes these characters likable, you know? It just, that's not there. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how you I don't know how you explain this movie to anyone other than saying it's about a couple of cops and then you just hope they don't look at it until it's finished. <laughs> yeah. And you can't say cops. No. As soon as you if you were to pitch that to me, I'd be like, ooh, and, and if you use the word Nero, neo-noir and a couple <laughs> of cops, you're fucked. Anybody watching the movie that you just recommended, you know, yeah. you're, like, you're setting up some expectations that are definitely yeah, totally. not going to be fulfilled. So, so, yeah, to me, it's like I would say it's a it's a movie about two different couples, two different people trying a relationship. When I don't know, yeah, that's I would like to. That's a fun exercise, actually. Maybe that's what we could spend some time trying to figure that out because there there is a way to explain it. You just take out the set piece salesman stuff, and you just talk about four, like two different two examples. Okay, we're not ready for it. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> I think the study is okay. Let's let's talk about this. Why do you think he did two couples? Why do you think he picked those two actors, those two couples? Why do you think they're not intertwined? Why do you think he does the handoff? Besides it just being the mm. functional way of going, I fell in love again, and then you know he like basically saying he falls in love with any girl that gives him a remote amount of attention. Right? right. We get it. That's his conclusion, but. Why do you think he picked those two people? What what's similar about them? And like, you know, what's the what's the balance? Because two equals even, an even number, but it doesn't end even. Why do you think he did that? Right. Well, and also, of course, it was conceived as a trilogy, right? It was supposed to yeah. also include the story from Falling Angels, yeah. um, which should not be there, right? Because it yeah. absolutely functions as its own story and, and it makes so yeah. much more sense. I, my instinct is that the thing he's trying to explore is the concept of devotion. And that's what keeps coming back. Uh, you know, like 223 and May had something, it's over before the movie starts. And he's obsessed with the date of May 1st at the pineapple thing. The, the date of May 1st also occurs elsewhere in the film. And it's all about a countdown of some sort. And I think, I mean, I remember at the time, a lot of it was about the handoff of Hong Kong to China in 1997, yeah. which is still three years off. So the sense of, of everybody dealing with this looming deadline that they can't escape seems to be part of it. But the devotion aspect of it is purely personal. Everybody in it is doing stuff that only they understand because their partners yeah. aren't present. Yeah. So even if they're there, they're asleep or they're absent and it's all about these little acts of proving that you love a thing before the thing goes away. And I was trying to figure it out at the time, like, is this about him leaving? Does he think he's going to have to leave Hong Kong when it goes back to China? And that's how he's recalibrating this movie. Is that the metaphor? And I don't know that it is, but the movie is so expansive and metaphorical that it could be. Right, like yeah. it's, it's hard to argue that anything, it, it's, any it's, interpretation it's, yeah, is it's invalid. Too, it's too romantic of a, of a, a, it's it's not too romantic. It's it's such a romantic viewpoint that it's like, yeah, you can't argue against that, you mm. know, because that, that there is a whole. I mean, you know, I mean, look, like how many people have said like Hong Kong cinema died after '97? You know, like there's just a lot of deaths after that. I think in that business. I mean, just I don't know if you read the article where they're changing all, all the lights are like changing to LEDs from fluorescent lighting and like every every cinephile was like, oh, how dare you? You know, and it's yeah. it's yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. No, no, no. It's it's that's pretty much my thesis. Like, I don't know that that's valid. I don't know that it can be disproved. But so much of so much of Wong's movies are about you know, it shows up in every single review and I'm, it's become a cliche, but they're all about longing. They're all about missing something or wanting something that you can't have. Yeah. And no one else does that the way he does it. And it's the, it's the fetishism of texture and the, or the fetishizing of texture and, and, and I don't know. I introduced screening of In the Mood for Love, I want to say 10 years ago at, at Harborfront in Toronto. And the only thing I could say to people, because this was an outdoor screening, we did this whole international program, and all I could think of is it's late at night and people are going to fall asleep. And <laughs> it's like, it's just not their fault. It's a hot night. It's the middle of, I think it was the end of July. It was humid. It's a long, slow, deliberate film. And, and I said, it's okay if you fall asleep because you'll be dreaming it. And that works for this film. And it works for all of his films. His films are dreams of emotions that he can't allow himself to feel so he makes movies about them 
your suggestion that everyone in the film is on the spectrum is something that had never occurred to me before, but it is absolutely there. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, because you don't, because, you know, part of it though is this, like people are humans, people are beautiful and you don't labeling them with anything spectrum related, whatever. It's not also appropriate and it doesn't give you any extra info, but mm. just feeling it and knowing, noticing that all of them are that way. It's not, this normal guy that wants a spectrumy girl. It's just like, it's like, here are these very complicated people that really suffer from, yeah, that longing of something they can't have, that missing element. But just think like both the guys talk to inanimate objects. They talk to things. They, you know, when he says like, don't cry, I'm disappointed in you. And he rings out he's like, it's, you know, and then the next time he's like, it's okay to cry. That means you're strong, you know? <laughs> and, and I found that really emotional because like I, I have elements of that. Like I, 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 I'm a big kid. Like I, I still pers like anthropomorphize things. And I, I don't believe that what we know, what we learn as adults is actually truth. Like, I think some stuff when you're a kid is magical, a gift a purity that gets kind of watered down and layered and things. And so there is an immaturity to almost every single one of his films too, like a stuntedness, like a mm -hmm. lack of a mom figure or maybe a lack of a role model figure in a lot in like maybe his life that gets tra translated. And you're, you're right. Like there is a, a, I think what I relate to it is the disconnection, the, 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 like do you, there's that scene where the, uh, the in the second, um, in the second story where he's massaging her leg and she really doesn't like it. And it like hurts her. You know, and it's kind yeah. of invasive. It's sort of like not okay. Like if you watch, like when you watch it, especially now, mm. post Me Too, you're just like, mm, cancel, <laughs> you know, and you're, and you're, and you, but, and she doesn't like it, but like why she doesn't like it, we don't know. And at that time you could just kind of do the chauvinist thing. You could do the whatever she likes it. She's just playing this or that. But now I'm just like, no, like you could tell she hasn't been, she's not touched very often in her life. Touch is weird to her. Like the way she shows love is living in his graveyard of a home, you know, and mm. doing things for him and servicing him. And he is trying to almost project rape onto her, like take that other girl and go, I used to massage her and I'm going to massage you so that I feel like I'm talking and dealing with her. Like, that's not acceptable. It's not okay. That's, there's a, there's a pain and a suffering there somewhere. And, you know, I found that to be, you know, the way he glazes over it. I don't think he ever makes comments about those things, but I don't think Wong Kar Wai is emotionally unintelligent. Like I'm, I'm positive. Those are feelings that he knows exists and probably sometimes comes up and just those layers, the, the, the complexity of just what I have been taught in a very westernized thinking of filmmaking is you strip away fat, you strip away layers. If any studio exec came and said, hey, don't you think that would distract us from us wanting to get with her if you were to do that? That's probably correct, but not in this movie. In this movie, that's not a distraction. Those mm -hmm. distractions are the main part of the movie, you know? Um, and like, I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's funny because it's like, I used to be able to feel like the movie as a whole worked with a theme and it said something. And then this next time I watched it, I said, no, no, it doesn't. And that's actually why it's good. Why I thought it was good is because it's somehow he makes it work. It's, you know, into this thing that like a Western audience can understand. But when I watched it with this fresh viewing of with another person, their brain was like broken. You know, they, it just like, they just, they didn't know how to feel about the movie. It was like, I've never seen anything like that. And um, I think that's true. And I think when you said nobody has ever explored that it's all about somebody wanting something they can't attain. I think, you know, a, a brand that I have made for myself that I call, I call something uh, lonely pop, which is yeah. basically just always a telling a story of either people who are lonely, whether it's metaphoric, whether it's on a mental health level or actually um, lonely, but in a, some kind of a pop construct, you know, like, so a good example is Castaway is a lonely pop movie. Terminator 2 is a lonely pop movie, a kid who doesn't have a mom or a dad, and then he gets them in this action movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think Wong Kar Wai is the only example of a filmmaker that I know who has constantly only made lonely pop movies. Every movie is just this loneliness, this 
desire for something, it, you know, um, and everything is veiled. Like in the mood for love sounds like it's about love, but it's not. <laughs> You know, and, 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 and he's not dumb. He doesn't, he knows he's using the word love as a substitution for some other illness, some other form of addiction, some other form of longing. Um, I've never heard anyone actually say it the way you did, um, you know, but like, it, it, I guess, yeah, it, it is what it is. But I think the romance that I would pull from that is, yeah, there is a, there is this longing to be one, right? And I think that's what love is. Love is not one. Love is not that when you Venn diagram, that's love, right? You're still this other part of your Venn diagram. The love part is right here, but you have to respect these other parts of the people. And in his movies, none of those characters do that. They just want, they want this, this, they want the ultimate codependency overlap. Yeah. And that's where all, why all of it gets destroyed in every single movie, you know? And I, I think that's, I don't know. I just think that's crazy to just source to filmmakers early work and just see like, does he even know that? Like, I'm sure he's still figuring out love, but to just, you know, I don't know. Yeah. The one thing I would love to do is sit down with Tony Long and find out what he thinks he's doing. Because, <laughs> you know, they're so closely integrated uh, as actor and director and, and there's absolutely an understanding in Lung's performances that he's fulfilling the thing he's been instructed to do. I just want to know what that is and what those conversations mm -hmm. are like, because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I fall back on this story a lot of um, Peter Falk working on a woman under the influence with Cassavetes and having to, the, there was this one scene, he couldn't figure out how to play it. And so he walked over to Cassavetes. It was a dinner table scene or something. It was shooting in the house. And he said, I'm, I'm having trouble. What do I do? And Cassavetes said, okay, we'll talk about it. And they went for a walk around the block where they were shooting. And they were out for five minutes and they talked the whole time. And then the way Falk tells the story, Cassavetes brought him back to his mark, brought him back into the house and set everything up and said, okay, let's go. And he, and then Falk is like, we've been talking about baseball. What do you mean? What's going on? I have no idea. You, you gave me nothing. And that's, it feels like that's how, Wong communicates and it's purely a gut feeling just from, from watching all the, the material that I've seen of him. I don't know that he can direct people with words. I think he just creates the attitude in the texture and lets them exist within it. And it yeah, sounds and, so and, pretentious. Well, yeah, I wonder that's, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I, so the only, I have experienced him as a human once at a talk, at a lecture, uh -huh. but I've never had a one-on-one, -on -one, never hung out with him, always wear sunglasses, just, you know, uh, but like I, I, those, those moments are useless. I never look at a filmmaker when they're in talk mode because I know when I'm in talk mode, it's not me that's on set. It's a totally different person. Right. But what I've heard about him on set from when Steve Groen was uh, still alive running anonymous content, you know, he said back in propaganda slash early anonymous when he would do Wong Kar Wai stuff, it was too painful for him to want to do movies because Wong Kar Wai just didn't like scripts. He didn't like finishing anything. He wanted it to be an overlap because I think like the Cassavetti muscle, it's like there's an organism to it. You don't pre-describe the thing which is um, I think partially true, but you just got to be prepared. A lot of people I think got to be prepared, but what I think what I've heard from him is that, yeah, th again, I, I do think Wong Kar Wai is on the spectrum. I, I don't care what anyone says. I, I do think he is. And I think that he's got to speak to people who can speak back or understand the way he speaks. And I think Tony is that guy. I think, I think when you see him, it's like, I think he can be the he-man for him, but he can also be like the person that allows Wong Kar Wai to feel powerful and then he can look up to him too. You know, it's like, that's kind of an actor director relationship. It's like this, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm going to tell you how to do the scene. But then the actor's like, Hey, let me tell you how to get through this problem that you're in right now, director, because you're freaking out, you know, like, it's just this weird dynamic. And I, I would agree with you that I don't think he directs actors with like, this is your motivation. This is this, like, I don't think he does that. And, and I, and I'm positive in his later works, you can kind of see why, he kind of just didn't get, I feel like he wanted to get more pop, but I feel like as a director, 
he just couldn't fit into pop. Like pop didn't know what to do with him and he didn't know what to do with pop. And, but he wanted that. I think he really wanted that so badly. Like even when I watch, you know, Grandmaster, as much as it is like, you know, the antithesis of like a Kung Fu film. And it's like, it's, it's sort of, he still wants to, he does these cool things and he wants to be cool and he wants to like people to go, wow, but he just can't help himself. And I think, and, and I don't think he's okay with that. I think that bothers him and torments him. And I think, I think that's why those purity movies, that purity era of his just never got to come back. It's not that he got washed up. All these, all these terms, these awful terms, ageist terms we come up with, like, you know, uh, I guess Coppola shouldn't stop his, uh, you know, shouldn't have stopped uh, cocaine. You know what I mean? I, I blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nah, dude, Martin Scorsese fucks up here and there, but that guy's still kicking. Cindy Lumet fucks up here and there, but that guy was still fucking kicking, you know? So no, there is a, a thing of growth that can exist until you die. The elders have a, it's a, you're reborn all the time after Gene is dead. Like I'm, I'm, an, I feel new. Like, I don't know what I like right now, but I know something's coming. Um, but I think like, yeah, with him, I think the way he, you know, one, one anecdote I had from Steve was he said that he um, would walk in and he would just give a story about an experience he had. Like, I think he said like his cat died or something. And it was so with when he said it, I was like, dude, that's the fucking, that's the pineapple guy, you know, that's yeah. the fucking pineapple guy. Like the way he said the story and he, he said that like, and it was like a, it had nothing to do with the scene at all. But like somehow the emotion was right. And I was like, okay. But a lot of actors, they don't, they can't do that. Like when I was doing this Doors anthology, like Josh Peck, one of the characters, like he would, you can't talk psychology with that guy. And I love talking psychology. The way you have to talk to him is she's not happy and she's going to dump you unless you make her laugh. Go, you know, like that's how you have to talk to him. And I love that too. That's a muscle that I like learning, but I'm, I love just, abuse and neglect and you didn't have a role model but a lot of actors don't know how to translate that and so I think for him he was just banking on it but again like I'm an 86er well he's born in the 60s I think right was Wong Kar Wai 60s baby yeah I think 62 I think yeah 62 so he's like a what either old gen x or barely a boomer I don't know the cutoff but so no I'm wrong 1956 dead 1956 so then he's a boomer yeah you know he's a boomer yeah, he, I think he was in his 30s when he was kind of blowing up, you know, or like making his first stuff. But um, he, you know, he definitely, um, you know, was an era where directors are king, you know, and I think like no director can, it's like the way nobody can act like a Fincher. Nobody can act like those older directors. It's you're in this collaboration um, diplomacy era of directors, not the tyrannical era of directors. Yeah. And I think he got away with that. And I, and I, and, but I think even in that era, I just don't think, just look at the, look at the level of actors he's worked with, how it's, he just, it's just not, the span is not wide enough for me to have faith that the way he spoke to people, as you said, could be understood. I think he was incredibly misunderstood. And I think all of his movies are about relationships of people being mis- misunderstood because the, what's in here and what's in here does not know how to come out, does not know how to come out, you know? And, and I think like, it's a tragedy though. It, it breaks my heart because it's just like, fuck, like a, a person's whole existence is that, it, it, is that not only what, what the movies say, but like his own ability to make things. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a tearjerker. It's just, it's, it's, and I, I, I never experienced that in viewing any of his movies, except for maybe in the mood for love, which is a little bit more an on the nose emotion up towards that. But with Chunky Express, it's just, you know, with the cranberry song, it, it fools you into thinking like, you know, isn't that beautiful with love? And I go, no, it's not. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, know? it's, it's the one film that tricks you into going out on a high. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's, I don't, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. And I wish, I wish I was looking at a bunch of interviews with him, like reading a bunch and he just, he doesn't give you much. I have to give him credit that he just, he doesn't, he does like the mystique and he does, he knows that that's the most powerful thing for people is to just live their entire life fantasizing the answers, you know? And, and I'm sure with all of your Blu-rays and all of the people you have been able to get answers from, and then you're like, I don't like that answer or what a great answer <laughs> to people where you're like, 
oh man, I wonder what their answers would be. And it's exactly the same. Some of them you'd be like, that's a shit answer. And then some of them are, would be poetic, you know? Like, I think that's, I think that's my, why I like Chunking Express so much is it's the, it is the wild card in my top 20, one of the wild cards of my top 20 list in the sense that it's permission to not follow an act structure, to just visualize poetry and, and replicate an emotion and a delusion that you feel when you are so looking for something that you just can't find. Whether that's actually what you need or not is besides the point. And the movie doesn't even like talk about that or hint that. But if you analyze it, you can see like, what does this person probably need besides a therapist? You know, um, that kind of stuff, you know, but yeah, um, I think, um, but anyways, now that we've talked about that, how do we summarize the movie? Well, I was going to draw a, a, a comparison to Doors and the ambiguity there. And the fact that so much of that film is about withholding the information the same way Chunking Express does, that we are given separated segments and forced to make sense of them uh, in, as they relate to one another and find the common threads to figure out what's going on. But of course, there's a science fiction alien encounter aspect that completely changes the context of every scene. So one, I mean, just as we'd said that, you know, you could, you could describe Chunking Express as a cop movie if no one actually watches it. Yeah. You know, you could say, Doors is a science fiction anthology, but it really isn't. I mean, it's just a series yeah. of character studies. Yeah, I mean, you could even say it's an alien invasion movie and it's really not. The way you could explain Solaris is about somebody visiting a, a weird planet toyed entity. You yeah. know, it's not, you know, it's a, like Solaris is about grief and about facing grief and 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 the ghost that follows you of the, of the bereaved. And this, and yeah, Doors is about uh, yes, this cosmic entity that comes, but it's really a, an, a, a, a reflection of ourselves. The door is merely just a reflection from the kids in the first segment and, 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 and to the, to the three volunteers in segment two, to the, to the hermit, you know, spectrumy hermit, uh, uh, that Kit plays in segment three. It's, you know, I mean, his name is backwards. The door calls itself Lamage, you know? So it's, it's, it's really just a mirror for psychology. And I think that's what the movie is. It's like using this psychological horror trope to just talk about these people's problems, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, and it's, and, and, and I wanted it to feel like, I hate the term experimental. Half the time that's used when people didn't really know what they were doing or they made a lot of mistakes or it didn't come out as packaged as they wanted. But it, it, it's, it, to me, the door is experimenting on humans and that's how I want the movie to feel. And I think that even though there is a cohesion, I think the way it ended uh, is the right way to end where you, it, hopefully there's enough human elements that have been given to the audience and ideations that have been given to the audience and enough self-reflection in the audience to figure out the ending for themselves. Um, and, and I know that's not the case. You know, I know that there is a version of this movie that's, super pop and, and, you know, in all fairness, I think there, that has always been the difference between how I want to always make movies and, and how people want to sell movies. And I think, I think the movie, even as in the trailer is sold as something that is not really the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I just have seen that so many times happen that I just, you know, I surrendered to it. Um, Cause I think, you know, the business doesn't care about being honest. It cares about getting people to watch the movie. Um, and I think, but I think the movie will find its audience. I think the, the, the cerebral heads, the people who do psychedelics, the stoners, the people who like to think a lot, the sort of like scientists, I think those people will like the movie. You know, I think, you know, my grandma won't get it. <laughs> no, but she'll be supportive because it's your movie. Yeah. She'll be like, yeah. yeah. The, I, I did wonder why the texture of the doors looked so earthy, but now you're making a pretty good argument for uh, the psychedelic aspect of yeah. it. I had not thought about that, but yeah, that works. Yeah. I mean, it's also earthy because it's all, sort of also mirroring the environment. So like in the first one, it's kind of graphite-y. In the second one, it's got a little bit more rock and dirt mm -hmm. and it looks more like the Pacific Northwest. And then in the third one, it's like really earthy because it's Vermont, which has a lot of like roots and dead trees growing on top of trees 
And, you know, it's all subtle. It's supposed to, hopefully it feels right. But yeah, like originally we wanted to go very monolith looking and, and we just, we just couldn't do it. We were just like, we didn't, the nod was too obvious and it couldn't interact. It couldn't do things that felt alive. And then as soon as we did do that, it just took away the monolith. So we just said, you know what, like, let's just have it be the shape of some kind of rectangular monolith ish and just make this organism that's confused and doesn't know what it is. You know, it's almost alive, but because it's shaped that way, you just know it's something's wrong, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that, uh, Doors has in common with Chunking Express, weirdly enough, is that it's all about people whose the last thing they want is to be alone with themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Or the last thing they need is to be alone with themselves, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's, it, it is, it is a, there is a longing, there is a connection, there is a um, disillusion quality to everybody's illusion is ripped apart and you see the different parts of it. So like, in segment one, you see the beginning. When she goes in that door, you don't know what she's experiencing, but mm-hmm. you get the birth of her. You don't know, like what you felt with this other person is not the same thing. And it was a projection, you know? And just like the door is a projection of this person. In mine, you get to see what is eating up this person. Um, and then, in, you know, in, in, in Dugan's, it's interesting because we never even go in and you get to see that arc um, happen. But yes, I think that's totally... That's totally correct. Even though I think in Dugan's, there's a little bit more of a like positive kind of ending, at least with the main characters, there is a only in this alone moment do does the, um, the story kind of unfold, you know, into, uh, uh, the characters true wants or desires, you know, and it's basically a shrink from fucking outer space, like from hell, I guess, cosmic hell. Right. Like, if you pass your EV psychological tests, you will live. If you don't, you die, you know? Um, and that's kind of how that's, that's kind of what happens to the characters, I think. Yeah. Which of course makes it even more fun for us watching at home, trying to figure out what the rules are, because when you're dealing with a cosmic test, who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? Yeah. You got to go with it. And it's a little cheating for sure. There's so many cheats, you know, but I think to the, to the person that just wants to kind of get into the cerebral stuff, I think it, it's enough. You know, we had a lot more rules and we just cut it off. We cut it out. We just, I just made it, I just cut and cut and cut and got rid of a bunch of VO and just wanted it to just, just be enough, you know? Um, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, again, it comes back to one way, right? He proves that you don't need exposition. You can just yeah. read the mood that tells you what you, what you're feeling. Yeah. I, I think that's true. Yeah. I, 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 I still don't think Wong Kar Wai thinks like that because I think he just does what he wants. <laughs> yeah. But, but yes, I think that's what the, what the, the child that he's created uh, teaches us, you know? Um, I think, I, I think that um, that's, what's amazing. That's why I separate the art from the artist. I think a lot of people have a hard time doing that. And when people say, who is your favorite filmmaker? I don't have an answer because I think they all equally suck as much as they're awesome. You know, um, they just do like all of them are, you know, all of them can be a fuckhead just like the way I can be a fuckhead and all of them are flawed and all of them are driven by ego while also being driven by passion and love, even if they don't know it. So to me, their children, their, their choice to create these meta children, I think are the lessons they leave behind, whether they know it or not, you know what I mean? Um, I think that's, and that's incredible, you know, and that's why when people are like, I hate Polanski. It's like, but I can't hate repulsion. You know what I mean? I can't hate, I can't hate repulsion and I can't hate Rosemary's baby, you know, but I can hate him, I guess, you know? Um, but people think, you know, let's take away his movie to punish him. I'm like, dude's almost dead. You know what I mean? You're punishing cinema if you get rid of those movies, you know? Um, even Woody Allen to a degree, you know, I think because he's still making movies and kind of considered maybe prolific like that, I can see why there's a connection to destroy him from making movies but you're never going to take Annie Hall away from the best rom-com, best romance movie of all time, you know, like, or at least one of them. I don't think anyone can argue at least one of them. Um, uh, it's, it's something I haven't been able to resolve for myself either. The, the fact that the movies mean a lot to me, the people, you know, I, I never need to think about them again. And I'd probably be happier if I didn't. But how do you reconcile the fact that you invested part of your life and maybe even built part of your personality from, from these works of art? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you remember though, they're doors, 
They're just you. You know, a movie, you're, a movie isn't just escapism. It's why Marvel movies can be boring is because that is escapism. But what a real good movie is, is it can latch onto you and then you get into the movie, you know, and it becomes a part of you. So I think like, that's why I don't feel terrible when I watch Annie Hall, because I know what I take from Annie Hall. I know what I take from it. And my top 20 films are not about the best crafted movies. I have Solaris, Soderbergh Solaris on there, which like most people fucking hate, you know, but I love it. I, I love it. I adore it. And I, I love how brave it is. And it's a shame that it was sold as, you know, um, and that was like, all, my mom even went to go see it because she thought it was going to be this romance movie and it was just fucked up. And I just was like, that's why the movie sucks. Like, it's why Vanilla Sky has a bad rap too, just because it's, oh, it's a copy and it was advertised this way. And that's why it has a terrible rap because it's like putting Tom Cruise in the most like awful situations in his career. You know, and I think that's why I also love it. But it, that's not in my top 20, but it's the same sort of muscle where I think my top 20 and I'm sure you have a very personal top film list is like it's just it's you. It makes up you. Like if I died, I, here's the, here are the movies that are me, you know. My thanks to Simon Kesh, whose new sci fi anthology Doors is available to rent or buy right now on your VOD platform of choice. Thanks also to Suzanne Sheridan. She knows what she did. You can find Simon on Twitter at Ghibli303, that's G-H-I-B-L-I-303, and you can find Chunking Express on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection, both on its own and in the beautiful new World of Wongar Wai box. It's also available to stream on the Criterion channel. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to writing about film and stuff, I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing a weekly now-streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.